Amen. Okay, good. Well, you have your outline there in front of you. We're on part four. And uh, today, what I want to do is I want to talk about how, how generosity actually impacts us individually and corporately. And, and this, is, this is the thing that maybe we don't quite get, but there is, there is a spiritual connection um, in how we give and how we sow and how we release. There's a connection to how our souls prosper and how um, we experience the move of the Holy Spirit. And, and biblically, that's clearly established. And I just want to give a a little bit of teaching on how that works. Um, you, you know, uh, there's multiple examples in the Bible where there would be times of revival and there would be uh, a, a massive um, outpouring of generosity by the people of God and they, it goes hand in hand uh, with the move of the Holy Spirit. And so we want to connect our hearts to that. We want to... Um, I understand how it actually works in the, in the economy of God. I liken it to fasting. Uh, one of the things I think that's always been fascinating to me is this, that if I, if I fast and pray, um, it actually has a compounded effect on my soul. Um, it creates humility and all sorts of things in my soul. Uh, and it has a compounded effect on the effectiveness of, of the praying that I do when I fast. Now, naturally speaking, it doesn't make any sense if you think about it. You, you don't eat, you pray, and somehow that has a supercharged outcome on your prayers and on the impact on your own soul. It's like, don't eat the hamburger, and your soul prospers in a more powerful way. It, it, it there's, doesn't seem to be a real connection to it, but the Lord does that. He, he, he sets that up as a, as a way that we encounter him. We push our flesh down. We say no to, to you know, cravings, and we say yes, and even in uh, the pain of hunger to the Lord, and there's a spiritual impact. That's the point. Well, giving and generosity is very, very similar. I, I don't quite get it, but we give... Our finances, we give our resources, we give our time, we give our heart, we give it generously, and then the Lord measures back spiritual outcomes. And it's interesting to me how the Lord ties uh, spiritual impact to very natural, simple things that we do. And so that's what I want to break through uh, on today. I want to talk about that, how individually generosity impacts us, and then how corporately generosity impacts the move of the Spirit of God. So let's look at our, our outline right there in, in Roman number one. Just give a quick recap of last week's message, just to get those up to speed who maybe weren't here. Um, we talked about how the Bible gives us clear instructions, clear instructions on giving, when to give and when not to give. And I went over about five to seven you know, specifics on when we're supposed to give and when not to give. And uh, if you missed last week, you got to hear a preacher actually instruct people when not to give. Probably the first time you ever heard that, but I did it. If you want, you can go back and listen to that on our, on our website. It's, uh, the messages are posted online at ihop-atlanta.com. So we also found that there, these specifics include that we are never to give when we're being coerced, manipulated, or pressured and I, if, if you took away nothing from this series, I'd like you to take that piece away. 
Take that revelation with you. You're not supposed to give when somebody is pressuring, coercing you, or manipulating you. Any of those appeals where the, the pressure is on, you have to give right now, and you're going to get that special something, something. I would just immediately just pause, just dial down. Is that you, Holy Spirit? He's not forcing you, coercing you. And Paul said, we don't give out of coercion. And I would just wait. I wouldn't give in that moment of, of high emotion and pressure. Three, we also found that there's specific times we're supposed to give. We're supposed to give first. We're to prioritize it. We're supposed to give when we're led by the Holy Spirit, which he's always generous. And uh, we're supposed to give according to what we have, when we have to give. And most of us in America have plenty to give, but we don't give beyond what we have. My point is you're not supposed to make a faith pledge when you have zero dollars. You don't do what I did when I was a young man and I told the story. I made a $1,000 faith pledge with no money. Glory. Don't do that. It's not the Lord. All right. And then finally, we talked about the tithe, and we, clear, we gave some clarity on the tithe, tithes and offerings, and, and we said that the tithe is a biblical principle and a baseline for giving, and New Testament generosity actually goes beyond giving just the tithe, and we explained that in detail last week. All right, good. All right, let's look at Roman numeral 2. And I want to talk about the spiritual impact that generosity has on your own heart. Now, you kind of already get this. Like, you kind of get this. Somebody who's stingy, who's greedy, you can kind of tell that stingy, greedy person, I mean, you can kind of tell that they tend to be locked down in their soul and in their spirit. They don't tend to be flowing in the the life and the love of God. You can kind of tell that just by talking to that person that's really stingy and greedy. And a lot of times we see that a person that's really greedy, they are engaged in a bunch of other sinful activity. And that's why uh, the Bible teaches us that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils. So when you're anchored to the love of money, it impacts you in a nasty spiritual way. It's kind of a strong way to say it, but it is. It's true. It impacts you negatively. Well, Jesus, he broke it down real clear, and some of the language is a bit archaic, and so we can read through this portion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 and not quite get what he's actually saying. So I'm going to go verse by verse, and I'm just going to to go through this passage. This is one of the most clear, direct passages on giving and how giving impacts our soul. Now, just I want you to catch this point. Giving or not giving impacts your soul. Just like yes, saying yes to God in obedience or, or saying no to the devil has an impact on your soul. Just like resisting temptation or not resisting temptation to sin has an impact on your soul. Giving and generosity has an impact on your soul. And that's so clear when we look at what Jesus taught us. So Matthew 6, 21 through uh, 24, I'm going to read the whole passage together, and then I'm just going to go back and break it down uh, verse by verse. So Matthew 6, 21, it says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
Verse 23, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, you've heard that passage undoubtedly many times before, if you've been in the church any amount of time. But sometimes what, we're, what we um, misunderstand is actually the specific connection that Jesus is making in each one of these verses. And there is, there's a specific A plus B equals C connection that he's making from verse 21 through verse 24. And so, as I said, in A, they're under Roman numeral 2, as I already said, the, the, there's a real and legitimate connection between generosity and your spiritual state. That's, that's a critical, clear point we need to just understand. Now, what was Jesus talking about when he said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also? That, that's pretty straightforward, and, and essentially it's this. When you put your money into something, or you put your time into something, or you, or you put your, your energy into something, where your treasure is, when you put your money into it, or your time, your treasure, into something, your heart will be connected to that thing, okay? So wherever you put your finances, your, 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 your time, your energy, your emotions will be connected to that thing. Your soul will be. Um, uh, I have a friend, and he is a booster for the football program at a certain college, who will remain nameless today. You know, you're in the thick, when you're in the thick of football season in the South, you just don't want to offend people. You know what I'm saying? Be politically correct. Be, if you're going to be politically correct, do it that way. So anyway, uh, he's a booster, and he gives money. Now, he's, he's a believer. He gives lots of money into the gospel and into, uh, you know, the ministry. But he's a booster for this particular uh, school. And he, and he gives money in. And he gives enough money that he actually gets emails from the president of the university. Now, that's a pretty big deal. And, uh, and he's got all sorts of ideas how they need to run their football program, of course. But the thing that's interesting to me is this principle doesn't just work with spiritual matters. I mean, if you want to meet a rabid football fan, find a guy, find a guy that's, that actually gives money into the booster program, you know, actually gives money into that program, and you will find some of the most, I mean, passionate, rabid people about how those football programs are run. Why? Because where you put your treasure, your heart is connected to that thing, Okay? Now, that's a, that is a biblical principle. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be. Your, your heart is going to follow what you, what you engage with. And the reverse is true. What your heart is interested in, your money will follow that. So there's a, there's a connection between your, your treasure and, and your affections. Your, your, where your where your desires go, what, where your emotions are, okay? And this works with anything. Wherever you put your money, that's where, that's where your heart's going to be. Now, look at this. So Jesus is going to tie verse 21 to verse 22. Now, it seems like, it could seem like he's starting a new conversation, but he's not. He's in the same exact vein. He says this, the lamp of the body is the eye. That phrase is an interesting phrase. 
But what he's going to say is that what <clears throat> the thing that lights your soul and lights your body is your eye. Your eye will turn light on inside of you. Okay? It will either, and he goes on to describe that it will turn light on or it will turn darkness on. Okay? Your eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. Why? Because your eye is the lamp. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now, I've never seen a lamp that puts out darkness, but your eye has the ability to put out darkness into your soul and into your body. It's interesting. He says, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness, and therefore the light that is in you is darkness. He goes, how great is that darkness? In other words, how, how horrible is it to be filled with darkness, to fill yourself with darkness. When you find someone who's filled with darkness, it's because they've set their eye on darkness. Does that make sense? Somebody doesn't just accidentally get filled with darkness. And the alternate is true. Somebody doesn't just accidentally get filled with light. You know, I, I meet Christians in the South you know, and, the, and you go, so when did you get saved? And they go, oh, I was born saved. <laughs> no, you weren't. <laughs> you were born in sin just like the rest of us, and you needed Jesus to save you from your sin. You were hell-bound and destined for destruction. So when did that change in you? Because it doesn't happen just because. Okay? Uh, and, and so here's the thing. Now, Jesus... He's not specific or, or not solely talking about just what you look at. Though, in context, what you, look at, what you look at is in view. It's part of the conversation. But he's actually talking, he's talking about the issue that he was just talking about. Your heart. He's talking about your affections. He's talking about where your emotions are. And he, the eye directs. Your affections. In other words, whatever you're engaging yourself with, it's going to fill you with something, light or darkness. And so the look is sort of the gaze of the heart. That's, that's what he's making the, the tie to. He's not separating, just, just clarity, he's not separating verse 21 and 22. He goes, where your money goes, your heart goes, and your eye will fill your heart with light or darkness. Okay? Your eye being your affections, your heart. So he's making the connection between these. So that's a serious thought to me. To just put it together, when I put my money or my treasure into something, my affections follow that and whatever that is, I'm looking at, I'm gazing at, that is impacting my soul. Do you see how that works? Really, really interesting to me. Because here's the deal. In America, we spend our money on all sorts of stuff. We've got more gizmos and gadgets and, and doodads. Come on, ladies, y'all know you got some doodads around the house. And all sorts of little trinkets and toys and, you know what I'm saying? 
And we will, in America, we sit there and set our eye and our affections on certain things. You know, we, we buy things, we buy clothes, or we buy cars, or we buy houses, or jewelry, because it's, for us, it speaks something to us about us. Okay? And, and what's going on there is there's this, there's this um, enthroning in our own soul of what we're looking at, what we're putting our affections on, and what we're putting our money into. Am I making sense? It's exactly what Jesus said happens. You put your money into it, then you put your heart into it, and when you put your heart into it, it fills you with something. Now, what we tend to do is we just think, you know, I've heard it said many, many times, it's okay to have money, but it's not okay for money to have you. Everybody heard that one? And I agree with that in principle, but what we tend to do is we tend to use those little kind of phrases to excuse ourselves from greed. Man, I'm teaching really good right now. We do. We tend to use those kind of little phrases to excuse ourselves from having our eye set on temporal things, having our affections set on temporal things. Because in the preceding verses, Jesus said this. He goes, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupts and and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And then he goes into verse 21 where he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the point is, when you, when you put your treasure into the gospel, into the progress of the kingdom, into being generous and, and sowing into others, your heart is there con- therefore connected with, with sort of a heavenly mentality, a, a heavenly heart, a, a desire for the kingdom and the gospel to go forth. Your heart is more connected with heaven. But when your eye is on earthly stuff, I want the newest one, the biggest one, the baddest one, the best one. Come on. I got to get the freshest one, the tightest one, the <laughs> whatever. Then your, your gaze is on the earth. Your affections are on the earth. And you don't even realize it, but you're filling your soul with earthly affections, and Jesus identifies it as darkness. Woo! Yep, just a nice little message to finalize the generosity series. That's what we're doing. And so there in C, just to say it again clearly, Jesus says that your eye, and I call that your affections, it's, it's just your focus and the, where, where your attention goes, where your affection is, your eye will light, it will impact your soul in a powerful way. And whatever you put your eye upon will cause your soul to be filled with that thing, either light or darkness. To say it again clearly, in other words, where you put your money directs your affections and where you direct your affections impacts your soul. Now, it doesn't seem like that It doesn't seem like if I'm putting my money into possessions that my soul is getting impacted by it or if I'm putting my money into the gospel that my soul gets impacted by it because it's not like, it's not just like the one time hit. It's the progress of this over time in your life. 
The more that you sow money into things, the more you will want things, and things will be what fills your soul, and you will be more identified by the things you own in your own mind. And the more in your life that you sow into the gospel, and you give generously to others, and you sow with a free heart for the progress of the kingdom, then your heart will be more connected to that And that will be where your soul is. That will be where your affections are. And that will be what fills your your body, fills your, your, your life. It's a progress. This is something that happens over time. It's not like, you know, you, you go to the restaurant and you buy a hamburger and your soul is filled with hamburger desire. It's not just that one-time hit. You see what I'm saying? It's a progress. This works over time. And you'll see it. I, I, I watch it. I, you know, I, I pay attention to older folks because I, I look at the, the outcome of a life. And I was talking to one of our staff this way, and, uh, this week about this. And, and you look at the outcome of a life. And, and you know, at times you'll meet a, an, an older person and they might be really near death and, and, and they'll have a free heart. And they just want to bless and give all, this, all their stuff away. You just It's wild. You just meet them and they're just... You know, they just bless you, and, and they're always, you know, wanting to give you something or, 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 you know, say something sweet to you. Well, what was that? Was that because at, at 80, they decided to be sweet or generous? No. That was because when they were a young person, they got it in their heart that they wanted to be generous. They wanted to be free, and they wanted to be giving. And for years, they just gave stuff away. They just blessed and gave into the kingdom. And they just loved and, 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 and gave freely. And so then by the time they're 75 or 80, there's this free-flowing love that's flowing out of their life. It's beautiful. It's a fragrance of Christ. It's, it's amazing. And, and then you'll meet somebody, and, and they'll be there maybe close to the end of their life, and, and, and they've spent their whole life being greedy and being a miser and, and, and not ever extending themselves or giving themselves away and being a blessing to others, and you'll, you'll meet them, and you'll just be like, wow, I've never met somebody so unhappy, so bitter, so, you know, so bound up in their own heart. Well, it's not because something happened the previous week that made them cantankerous. It's because a life of decisions to be locked down, to not share and bless and give and offer and and be free and be loving and give it away. It's caused their soul to be filled with darkness. Am I communicating? Listen, beloved, you don't want to be that person. I mean, if the Lord tarries, you want to be that. I want to, you know what? When I'm 80 or 85 or however long the Lord gives me, I want to be that guy that's sitting there with a bunch of 20-year-olds around me, handing out $50 bills. You know what I'm saying? And telling them how not to make stupid decisions with their lives. Handing out hundreds and five hundreds or whatever it is by then. It multiplies, you never know. Millions, glory. But <laughs> I, I want to be that person that's freely flowing. You know what I'm saying? When my, when my physical body can't, can't keep up as much, I still want to have a wealth on the inside of me of light that I can offer freely to anyone that's around. Well, that doesn't start when I'm 79. 
we have this little bit of a mentality in America like, when I hit it big, then I'll really give big. I'm just going to go, you saw that lottery, it's on $35 million. I mean, when I hit that big, that's just not how it works, guys. If you're not giving big when you don't have hardly anything, you're not going to give big if you hit it big. And the likelihood of you hitting it big in the Lord if you're not giving big now is like zero. If you don't give big, you're not going to hit it big unless the devil gives it to you. Because God's principle is, as you sow, you will reap. Wow, that was good. <laughs> if you want to be that free-hearted person, it has to be something that's in your life all the way. And that's, it's just wild to me that one of the things that impacts the soul being filled with light is how you actually give and how you actually release and how you actually bless. It's, it's amazing to me that, it, that it's a, something as simple as giving uh, your, your, your treasure. Now look where Jesus then takes it. Look at verse 23 and 24 again. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. See, we're back. We're still talking about this issue of money. We're still talking about this issue of finances. The, the good eye and the bad eye was still about giving. And so now the issue goes from affections and the impact on your soul to the allegiance of your life. He takes it to a whole nother level. Why? Because they are all connected. It's all connected. And so this is now about allegiance. Who will you serve? You'll hate one and love the other or be loyal and despise. It's disloyal to the other. There's no way, and this is what's amazing to me, there is no way to serve the God of heaven and mammon. Now, mammon was a false god. It was a false idol. It was worshipped in a couple different cultures. In Greek uh, culture, it was called Pluto, Plutus. But mammon was known in that day as the god of riches and pleasure. And so he says, you cannot serve the god of heaven and the god of riches and pleasure. That you, that, that, those two are in complete opposition to one another. And he's saying this, it's, it's the spirit of the age, the God of mammon. It's the spirit of the age. It's the lust for things. It's worldly pleasures and status and power. And it's really so ingrained into our entrepreneurial society. And listen, I'm not against entrepreneurship. I'm not against capitalism. But what I am against is a bad eye that fills your soul with darkness. I'm against that that ultimately causes the allegiance of your soul to be to mammon instead of to Jesus. I'm against that. Why? Because I'm fighting for us, for you, to love Jesus and to, to live forever with him. Because having a few riches in this place that's going to appear for a moment and then fade away, it, makes, it means nothing for your eternity unless you give unless you give it away and you store up pleasures there. And on the worst side, if you give all your affection and emotion into getting everything you can get in this age, that will cause your allegiance to shift to the God of mammon. And I would just tell you this, there is tons of examples, many, many examples in the church where Jesus 
wasn't the Lord at all. It was the money that was the Lord. And I, I can bring up example after example in church history and in modern days where the money is what directs the preaching. It's what directs everything that happens in the church. And you end up with the, the leadership and they're just bowing down to the guys that have the money. Man, I'm preaching right now. That's exactly what Jesus was hitting. You can't serve God and mammon. You see, there's just something about having your allegiance and your soul filled with light and your allegiance soundly given to Jesus that you're just not dissuaded by fame and fortune and pleasure and and all these things. And when you're in that place and you're free of the love of money and you're free from the service of the God of mammon, you can be bold about the gospel. You don't care about what people think. You're free in heart and you give generously every chance you have an opportunity. And so that's how it works. Uh, where your finances go, it direct your affections and, and where your affections go, directs your allegiance and, and there's no way to divide your allegiance between two masters. Uh, the lust for worldly pleasures stands in opposition to serving the Lord with all your heart. And what I say there in G is just this, that A person's inner life, their affections and their allegiance, it's easy to discern if you look at how they spend their time and their money. And it's just really, really true. All right, Roman numeral three. So what's the key then to extravagant generosity? What's the key to this thing? How do we we strike a death blow to serving the God of mammon? And because there's so many cultural pulls on us. You know, you got, to get, you got to get the newest, biggest, best thing, the new technology or the, the new car or the new house. And there's so many pulls on us. Well, there's just biblical examples that we have to see that, that encourage us. But there's a principle when we look at the, at the Macedonians that I think is just, it's just really the, the, the core issue. And so I just mentioned the widow and, and the widow's might. She gave, you know, basically all she had, which was two pennies, but it was less, it, it was less in in uh, number than anyone else had given, but it was more in percentage, and that's what Jesus identified. She gave more than anybody, and her heart was fully given to the Lord. You go, man, how does somebody get to that spot? And then you look at the Macedonians, and they sowed lavishly and generously out of their poverty. And you know, that's hard. That was clearly above and beyond what was expected, and they gave generously. And how do you get there? How do you get to where you want to give even out of that place of need? Well, the, the, the key, I think, to extravagant generosity is right there in verse 5. <clears throat> Paul talking about how they gave. It says, they gave not only as we hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Beloved, that is a critical principle. The giving of yourself to the Lord. I mean, really giving yourself to the Lord. Jesus, I am yours in every way. Heart, mind, soul, body, possessions. I am yours and no one else's. I'm not living for me, I'm living for you. And man, you can really identify the lordship of a person's heart by how they give. Because when they're fully given to the Lord, generosity becomes easy. 
But when they've got those little pockets in their own soul that they're holding back for themselves, it's hard to give. There's that begrudging thing. But here we have an entire church that's in poverty and they give so lavishly that Paul's letter to the the Corinthians, the second Corinthians, he goes, listen, I don't want you guys to be embarrassed. I don't want you to be embarrassed by how much they're giving. So 2 Corinthians 9, he goes, so I sent brothers to come beforehand to help you get your your offering ready. Because these guys in poverty, they gave incredibly. And you sort of scratch your head, well, how? Because first, they gave themselves to the Lord. Beloved, really, isn't that the answer? Isn't that the bottom line? Have you really, I mean, just in every area, just giving your heart over to the Lordship of Jesus. Just, Lord, whatever I have is yours. Whatever you want me to do, you just tell me. I, I'm not in this for me. I'm in this for you. I just want to love you and be obedient towards you with my whole heart. I just think there's something so precious and tender there that they first gave themselves to the Lord. There must be a giving of yourself first if you're going to step into generosity. And if there isn't a first giving yourself You'll never give your finances, possessions, time, and heart. Does that make sense? It's the critical bottom line key. It really is. How do I give generosity? How do I give generously? By giving myself to you first, Lord. Really giving my whole heart. I'm not talking about praying a simple prayer, answering an altar call. I'm talking about honestly with you and the Lord, searching the inner places and just having a real conversation with Jesus saying, Lord, Are there areas in my life that I haven't surrendered to you? Speak to me. There's that dying daily that Paul talked about that's required for for Christians. There is that, that, that glorious offering of ourselves to Jesus that's required for Christians. That, beloved, that is where generosity is born. When you're generously giving yourself to the Lord, then you will generously give as the Lord directs. Amen. All right. So that's how it impacts the the individual. Let's talk about now how it impacts the corporate. And we'll we'll close in the next several minutes with with this this point. Uh, And I want to dial in in the Bible. I want to talk about a biblical revival that took place under King Hezekiah. Now, there's a bunch of biblical revivals, and when you study them, you find out so many different little details that are just so interesting about them. And I, and I was looking at the, the revival under Nehemiah, and I was, I was dancing with it, going back and forth this week, whether I want to talk about Hezekiah or Nehemiah. I was originally going to talk about several biblical revivals, and I realized I can't get all that in. It's just too much. So I dialed it back to Hezekiah, but here's the thing you have to realize. When you find a biblical revival, you'll always find several key components. There's always a, a radical repentance. There's always like a radical uh, worship and prayer thing. They all, in the Old Testament, always went back to 24-7 worship and prayer. There's always a, a, um, a radical cleansing of idolatry. Anything that was getting the affections of the people above God, all the idolatry goes. And then there's always radical giving. Every single time. These components are always a part of those those biblical revivals. And there's a spiritual component to how when the people are in revival, how it impacts how they give and how how when they give, it impacts the revival. 
That, that thing works together as a, as a package. Uh, you don't find them ever in revival and they're gripped by greed. It's just not, never that way. So Hezekiah, let me give you the context. His dad was Ahaz. Ahaz was a bad king. He was a bad king in Jerusalem and in Judah. He served false gods, and because he did, the Lord judges him with the Arameans. And the Arameans come, and, and, and they really beat up the, you know, uh, Jerusalem and Judah, Judah, really beat them up. And, and, and Ahaz worships false gods. He shuts the temple of God. He actually um, creates high places all over Jerusalem and in the surrounding regions of, of, of Judah. And then after, he gets, after they get whipped by the Arameans, this is the way he thinks. He goes, well, their gods have served them well, so I'm going to sacrifice to their gods and maybe they'll serve me well. He doesn't turn to the Lord. He's got the temple sitting right there in his backyard. And he's worshiping false gods. That's Ahaz. Well, he dies and his son, Hezekiah, becomes king. He's 25 years old. And in the first two weeks of Hezekiah's reign, he makes a radical, radical shift and here's what I can't get. I don't get how a 25-year-old man who's watched his dad serve false gods, I don't understand, but there's this thing in his heart where he's just like, I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to serve the Lord with all my heart. And he makes a radical turn to the Lord. And so we just, I put it in here in, in your notes so that you can go back and study these few chapters on your own. I've read through them several times this week. And man, it just I felt the Lord on it so strong. So I just wanted to share it with you. So within the first two weeks, he reopens the temple. That's A. B, he calls the Levites and the sons of Aaron, the priesthood. And he says, all of you guys, I want you to completely consecrate yourself. Turn completely away from anything that's defiled you. And I want you to get to work on cleansing the temple. Get everything in the temple out of it that's defiled it. And so they go through this process of sanctification, turning to the Lord, cleansing the temple. And it takes them about two weeks. And they show back up and they are ready for service, ready to serve the Lord. And the temple is ready. And this is the charge that he gives them in, in, in chapter 29, verse 11. He says, my sons, this is to the Levites. He goes, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, that you should minister to him and burn incense. And we use this verse as one of those verses that really encourages our heart in the house of prayer. When we call people to stand before the Lord night and day, to worship the Lord in this place, we're saying we want you to stand before the Lord, to, to minister to him, to burn in your heart, and, and to serve the Lord. Stand, serve, minister, and burn. And so he gathers now all the Levites together then, after they've cleansed the temple and gotten themselves sanctified, and he gathers the elders of, of Jerusalem. And they all come together, and they have this fantastic worship, uh, day of worship. And, and so what he does is in the middle of that day of worship, he says, we're going to begin to sacrifice to the Lord. And they literally on that same day, they go and they gather an offering 
and they, they give generously to the Lord. And so uh, you see that in, in verse 31. It says, Hezekiah said, Now that you've consecrated yourself to the Lord, come near, bring sacrifices and thank offerings in the house of the Lord. So the assembly brought in uh, sacrifices and thank offerings, as many as of were of a willing heart. And we talked about having a willing heart. It's one of the key things to generosity. And they gave lavishly to the Lord. So from there, they have, this, they have this moment of breakthrough. They're feeling like, hey, God's stirring something. It's only the first two weeks of his, of his reign. So he says, you know what? We're going to go for it. Let's call all Israel to a Passover. And they hadn't, they hadn't celebrated a Passover together since, since like the days of David and Solomon. But he says, we're going to send riders out. We're going to send them to the northern kingdom. We're going to go through all 12 tribes. And we're going to invite them all back here to celebrate Passover together. And so when, they, when the riders go out, certain of, of the, the places begin to mock them and jeer them. But then what ends up happening is the momentum shifts and changes until the people that they're going out amongst, that they're inviting, they start getting like, you know, extremely encouraged and, and they get called all together to Jerusalem to do this Passover. I love this verse here in verse 12. It says, the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king. And what he's talking about is this, that the Lord anointed those messengers and when they were gathering the people, everybody's heart came into unity together. Well, why is that important? It's important because under Ahaz, there had been war in Israel between the northern king and the southern kingdom. There had been much war and the Lord rebukes the north and says, listen, you got to let the prisoners go. You got to actually just let them go. Turn them all back. Give all the bounty that you got from the southern kingdom. Turn them back or God's going to release judgment on you, northern kingdom. You're supposed to be brothers. You're not supposed to do this. So they had been at war just one, one kingdom prior. Now under Hezekiah, within the first month, he is gathering the whole nation together to worship God. Now come on. This is revival. And the Lord's hand is on the messengers, and the people start responding, and they gather from all over Israel to worship the Lord. And here's what's ha- what happens. When the people come in, and F, I, I kind of itemize it, when they come into the city, now remember, it's a walled city, but when they get inside the city, there's many streets, and, then, and there's the temple in the middle. They start going, they just... They just automatically, just intuitively start going through the city and they find every vestige of idolatry, every altar, every high place, and they tear it down. They don't allow one place of idolatry to to remain standing within the city of Jerusalem. Now, all these people from all over the nation, they're just fired up. There's There's a move of the Spirit of God on them. There's a zeal in them. They tear down all the idolatry. And so, at that point, They've got all these people that show up, and so the king turns back to the leaders, and he goes, hey, we've got to give some, something to, for, for the Passover. We've got to actually give right now, and they give generously, and the king and the leaders of Jerusalem, they give 2,000 bulls and 17,000 sheep right there in the middle of the revival. The Passover is celebrated, and the Bible says There was never one like this. 
from that time forward, even all the way back to the time of David. Powerful what's going on. Great joy fills the city. And then in verse 27, it says, and God heard their prayers. There was a breakthrough in the, in the, in the, in the spirit of prayer that, that came on them in that place. So then the people in chapter 31, they spontaneously go throughout all the towns of Judah and they cleanse every single town of idolatry, uh, idol worship, all the Asherah poles. They tear down all the idolatry. The revival moves from inside of Jerusalem all the way out through, through Judah and throughout Israel. And so at that point, the king says, you know what? I'm going to make sure that you Levites, that you're supported. And he gives, he gives another uh, offering of his own treasury to make sure that the, that the Levites can do night and day worship and prayer. Because that's what they reinstituted. They reinstituted the temple sacrifices and night and day worship and prayer. But here's what happens. At the same time, he gives a command. And he says, listen, all Israel, we want you to begin to tithe Again, so the Levites can be employed in the service of night and day worship and prayer. And there's not another offering like this in the Bible. In the middle of this revival, the people start giving an offering. (laughs) They start giving it in the third month, and they finish giving it in the seventh month. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. They're giving so much, it takes five months to take up an offering. (laughs) That's a big offering, yo. That is a big offering. You know, if the preacher gets up and talks like 15 minutes before the offering, people are like, man, this offering's taking forever. Well, they took up an offering for five months. What's going on there? And if you, if you look at this, how this works, it's so amazing. <clears throat> he calls them to repentance. He sanctifies the priests. He gives an offering. Then they worship together. Then they all give an offering. And then he calls the nation together. And they worship together. And the leaders and the king, they all give another offering. And then the people catch the spirit of it. And, and they go and they cleanse the idolatry from everywhere. And then they give the tithes and offerings. And when they give the tithes and offerings, when the people get in on the thing, there is such a liberty going on that the offering takes five months to take in. And they actually have to build warehouses onto the temple complex to store the Bible calls it the heaps that we're giving in the offering. You see, as we give, it begets giving and it opens the spiritual environment for revival. When they gave, when they were generous, there was a zeal that filled their heart and they tore down the high places. All of these things work together. It's what the Lord told Malachi, that was happening in the time of Nehemiah, he says, if you bring all the tithe in the storehouse, I'll open up the windows of heaven. There was, a, there was a spiritual dynamic that would take place if the people would enter into generosity. And you see that all the way through the Old Testament. And I wanted to put this story before you, number one, because I love the story, and I was just really feeling the Lord on it. But just, I'll just say this, as a shepherd... 
desiring to lead a people who, A, whose hearts are fully the Lord's, who are, whose hearts are clear of idolatry and clear of the spirit of mammon. I, I wanted to put this before you, but also as one that, I mean, I want to lead us into the place of devoted worship and prayer and revival. I want us to be a community that has a spark, a spirit of revival on us. And I realize this, there's a, there's a, a key connection between our generosity and the move of the Spirit. I don't understand completely how it works, but I know it's there. And so I want to call us again to generosity with the, with the vision of having a flowing environment with flowing hearts and the move of the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? The Bible gives us these pictures, yes, to inform us of history, but to encourage us to enter into the same. And I just think about it in the house of prayer. You know, we have, we have about 40 local staff. I'll just, I'll just speak plainly for a minute. We have about 40 local staff. And we have a, a large number of people in our community that, that come alongside and, and, and help serve in the house of prayer here. So the majority of it is carried by our staff. And our staff are all missionaries. They all raise their own support. And then so many people volunteer their time and, and they give their, their energy and their affections generously to see that the work of night and day prayer never ceases. And, and I just think, man, what if this, what if you had an entire community that was not only engaged in the prayer of showing up, you know, doing prayer, which many, many of you are, but what if everybody was thinking, I want to give generously so it just continues to grow and explode. Because now it's not just this place where we're building night and day prayer. Night and day prayer. We have five other locations. We have a team that's right now coming back from our, our base in, in Mexico. And all of those missionaries all raise their own support. And they're all seeing to it that a, a, a prayer reality of night and day prayer, that it doesn't, it doesn't stop. And they're 20 and 30 and 40 hours a week. But I just have this image in my mind of the way that the people gave generously, they were filled with joy, the idolatry was struck down, and there was a move of the Spirit, and the worship and the prayer continued to create that momentum in the Spirit. I just have a picture in my mind of what that can look like when a whole community enters into that same spirit of generosity, that same spirit of revival, and giving, I mean, generously and going for it, to see that God, His glory, it never ceases to be worshiped and praised. You know, here we are, and we've celebrated now 10 years in February, or 10 and a half years, coming up on really on 11 years of nonstop worship and prayer. And man, people have done it. I mean, I literally have staff back in the day, now we're, we're better than this now, but it literally did it making $100, $200 a month. I mean, just giving themselves generously to the Lord. And, and I just think about the heart that says, I just want you to be worshipped. I want you to be praised. I want you to be, to be worthy. And, and, you know, I didn't know they were making that much. And once we found out, we're like, hey, we got to get you trained how you can, you know, get a, get a real income. And we do that now. We have a standard that everybody has to, has to make. But I just think about the, the participation of the people of God in the vision of Jesus' worth being extolled night and day and what that can look like as a community. And I just think, I just happen to be silly enough to think this. I don't think missions and prayer should be marginalized. 
I happen to think that being a missionary doesn't mean you should be poor. Or poor, if you missed what I said. I don't think that should be the case. You know, for too long, the church, we'll take up the offering and we'll send stuff over, you know, to the, to the, the group overseas. And, and, I mean, I've had so many conversations with missionaries, like, especially ones that run the orphanages, and they go, oh, yeah, they took up an offering for, you know, clothes for us, and they, and they sent us a bunch of clothes, and every single piece of clothes we got was worn out and had holes in it. And it's like, guys, that's the wrong spirit. That's, the, that's clearly an offering given out of grudgingness, like gr- giving grudgingly. Now, I'm not saying we did it. I'm just saying I've talked to missionaries. And, and, and with, a, with the spirit of mammon behind it. Right? Oh, oh, I've got a vision in my heart of what it can look like for a generous people to give generously, for night and day prayer to just blow up out of this place, and for so many nations that don't know the name of Jesus, for his worth to be extolled in those nations, and the people giving with a free heart to see that work go forth, and then the gospel is powered into unreached areas that have never heard the name of Jesus. Because people in America and in other places decided, I'm not going to give myself to the spirit of mammon. I'm going to give myself to the Lord and offer generously. Amen. This message on generosity is critical to the move of the spirit. It's critical to our mission's vision. It's critical to the vision of the house of prayer. We have to engage with generosity for that to happen, for those things to come to pass. So I'm inviting us all into it. Amen and amen. Good, 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 good.